Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you today for your word. I thank you that you have spoken to us through your servants, through faithful followers of your word um, who saw Christ, knew Christ, and uh, fought for the true gospel. And I pray this morning that you would help us to align our mindset and our worldview and our value of the gospel with the Apostle Paul. Help the truths that were written many years ago to sink into our hearts today. Pray that you would convict us of sin and, and comfort us where we need to be comforted. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. 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 All right, so a question to start off. How many of you guys would say that the book of Galatians is your favorite book of the Bible? Okay, that's the response I expected. When you're asking a question like that, it's, it's always awkward if you get the wrong answer. So I'm glad I got that answer. Um, and I, don't, I, I would say I don't know too many people who would say that Galatians is their favorite book of the Bible. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's not one book that has to be everyone's favorite. But I do think it's interesting. And I think the reason that Galatians probably isn't most people's favorite is because it's so harsh. The book of Galatians is one of Paul's harshest, harshest letters. And it largely deals with correcting false teaching. Um, Paul's language is really scathing throughout the entire book. He says that if people change the gospel, they should be cursed. And he calls the Galatians foolish. Paul is very serious in the book of Galatians. But he's serious because the gospel is at stake. And so he's going to treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. In Galatians, Paul is dealing with people who are changing the gospel, and he doesn't take it lightly. So when false teachers start changing the gospel by addition or subtraction, we should actually follow the example of Paul in Galatians and hold firm to the truth. It's important because truth is important. But more than that, holding on to the gospel and defending it from addition or subtraction is important because preaching that false gospel leads people astray. And that's, I think, at the heart of why Paul is so serious about defending the gospel. He rebuked the false teachers so harshly in Galatians because their false gospel was harming people. They were making divisions in the church and adding standards to the gospel that could not be kept. They were pushing people away from faith in Christ and pushing people towards their own works. And so, Paul, out of, actually out of love, not just a, a stern desire to condemn these people, but out of love for the people in the churches there, he firmly defended the true gospel. So let's set the stage for the content of Galatians. Galatia is actually not a city. Galatia is a region in modern-day central Turkey. So it's not just one city. This is Paul actually writing to a group of churches in a group of cities. In Paul's first missionary journey, he focused on taking the gospel to cities in the region of Galatia. Paul and Barnabas visited Antioch, Pisidia in Acts 13. And then in Acts 14, they preached in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And their time in these cities foreshadowed the context of Galatians. In Acts 13... Paul preached the gospel in the synagogue in Antioch. And by the way, this is different Antioch than where the church was established in uh, Israel. That was where a lot of the early church was. This is Antioch in Pisidia, which is not in modern-day Syria where that Antioch is. This is modern-day Turkey. So Paul preached the gospel in the synagogue there, and he directly confronted the Jews in 
that city in Galatia. And he confronts them with the truth that Jesus was the Messiah and that this Messiah had raised from the dead. So in Acts 13.38, Paul says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So Paul specifically identifies that faith in Christ leads to freedom from the law. That's his teaching to the Jews in Galatia. And this would prove to be significant for his Jewish audience. After Paul preached that message in Antioch, verse 43 tells us that many Jews and devout Gentile converts to Judaism responded favorably to his message, and they believed. But other Jews opposed Paul, and they opposed him so strongly that Paul actually rebuked them and said that the Jews' rejection of him would lead to him preaching the gospel to the Gentiles instead. As Paul says in Romans, he preaches first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So then after Paul left Antioch, he went to Iconium, and the same thing happened. He preached, some Jews responded, but other Jews rejected him and pushed him out of the city. And when Paul departed there and preached in the city of Lystra, those Jews that had opposed him in Antioch and Iconium followed him to Lystra, and stoned him, leaving him for dead. Miraculously, Paul actually survived that, went on to another city, Derby, and then came back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Even though he was opposed by the Jews there, he wanted to strengthen the churches in the faith. He wanted to encourage them to continue. So, in Paul's first journey through Galatia, the opposition to his message was already strong. There were already Jews who were opposing the message that Jesus was the Messiah, and that that meant that they no longer had to live under the law of Moses. It was hard for them to accept the radical changes that Jesus brought. They were accustomed to following the law as a part of their identity, and so Christ coming and replacing the law was hard for them to swallow. So for some Jews, that meant fiercely opposing, opposing Paul and Barnabas as they went through, but for others, their Jewish heritage didn't keep them from embracing Christ. There were Jews that embraced Christ, but their background in the law led to some of the issues that we find in Galatians. And it influenced specifically how they interacted with Gentile believers. So in Galatians 2, verse 12, Paul says, For before certain men came from James, he, who is Peter, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So what Paul is saying here is that there's this group called the Judaizers who were influential in Galatia. And they were Jews that were teaching that Gentile believers had to be circumcised before they could be accepted into the community. They had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Essentially, they're saying that they had to bear the mark of Israel in order to be accepted by God. And they weren't willing to accept Gentiles in as full covenant members unless they followed that stipulation of the law. And Peter was so influenced by this group that he stopped eating with Gentile believers because they weren't circumcised. He chose to line up with this false teaching and harm these Gentile brothers and sisters. Now, this teaching is addressed in Acts 15, which is soon after Paul returned from Galatia on that first missionary journey. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, and the other leaders of the early church met together to give a definitive teaching on whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be a part of the community, a part of the church. This is called the Jerusalem Council. 
And ultimately, it was Peter who was at the heart of this uh, turmoil in Galatia. It's Peter who gives the defining message that because of his experience with Cornelius, where God had sent him to this Gentile to welcome him into the community, and he had seen Cornelius receive the Holy Spirit and believe in Christ, it was Peter who said that Gentiles were saved by grace through faith, nothing else, just like the Jews. So this is the background for Galatians, this controversy over what is necessary to be a part of the people of God, this council in Jerusalem, and this controversy with Peter. The Jerusalem council addresses the same matter that Paul does in Galatians, which tells us that Paul wrote Galatians either just before or just after the Jerusalem council. So the Jerusalem council was in AD 48, so that means Galatia, or Galatians was either written in the early 40s, or sorry, late 40s, or maybe early 50s. It was written around that same time. And so that means that although Galatians follows Romans and the Corinthians in, chron- in a canonical order, it's actually written before those books. Galatians is actually the first of Paul's books in the New Testament that he wrote. Now, the reason that it's not first in the order is because the canon isn't ordered strictly chronologically. It's ordered more thematically. And so the, for the books of Peter, or sorry, the books of Paul, the order starts roughly with his largest books and then goes down in descending order. So that's why Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, which are larger than Galatians, are placed earlier in the canon. But Galatians actually chronologically precedes all of the works of Paul that we have in our Bible today. So that means that early on in Paul's ministry, before he's really done a lot, just after one missionary journey, before he's written to a lot of the churches and people that we have in our Bibles today, he is faced with a challenge to the true gospel. This is a really big watershed moment in the history of the church and in the life of Paul. So let's take a look at how he responds to this challenge to the gospel. Well, if you're in Galatians, look down in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Galatians starts with a bang. After the greeting, Paul says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's really strong language. That's anathema, cursed. And that tells us how important the gospel is to Paul. In other places, he says there can be disagreement in matters of conscience. He says, Whether you would observe the Jewish holy days or whether you eat meat offered to idols, you can have legitimate difference of opinion. But when it comes to the gospel, there can be no disagreement. He says there is no other gospel, and anyone who tells you otherwise should be accursed. Those who tamper with the gospel message do not get special treatment. Adding to the gospel is unacceptable. Then throughout the rest of chapter 1 and a significant portion of chapter 2, Paul gives us a lot of personal details about his life, about his conversion, and about his life leading up to his time spent with the Galatians. He defends his apostleship, 
and he describes his growth as a Christian. And he specifies that he received the gospel from Christ alone. His gospel is from God, not from man. And while he interacted with many leaders and influential people in the church, they did not influence him away from the gospel that he received from Christ. And so as you read through Galatians 1 and 2 and are struck by all of the personal details, and he says, I went to this place, and I stayed here for this amount of years, and I talked to this person, and then I did this. He's, you know, you're not just reading his travel log. You're really reading his defense of his gospel. Paul tells us all about this in, or he gives us the reason why he's giving us all these personal details in, in verse 11 in chapter 1. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He was going through his whole life to show that his gospel was not something that he made up, and it was not something he received by another person. He received it from God. He was distancing himself from the Judaizers and saying that their message was something that they had come up with. But Paul's message, Paul's gospel, was the true gospel because it was from God. So then after these personal details, after this foundation that he's saying, this is God's gospel, we find the main point of the letter in chapter 2, verse 16. And he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And Paul's point here is so important that he says it three times. I don't know if you caught that, but he he kind of repeats himself over and over and over to get this through to them. He says, we are justified through faith, in Jesus Christ, not by our works. If you were to boil down the letter of Galatians into one line, that would be it. We are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, not by our works. So let's break that down. That, yeah. Let's break that down really quick. Justification refers to God declaring someone righteous. When someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, God sees the righteousness of Christ in their account. And the person's sin, he sees in Christ's account. So God sees that Christ's death on the cross satisfies his wrath against the sin of a person who has believed in Jesus Christ. God sees that person as righteous. And it's interesting, justification is not based on our works at all, but it is based on a work. It's based on the work of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of justification. So we say justification is not by works, and that's true referring to our works, but it's actually based on the work of Christ. Faith comes into it as a conduit, where we place our trust in Christ, and through that faith, God credits the righteousness of Christ to our account. That's justification. So we say that uh, we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, not by our works. Our works are not the basis. Christ's work is, our faith is the conduit. Galatians 2.20 describes justification this way. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Justification gives us new life by uniting us with Jesus Christ. And this new life comes through our faith alone. It does not come by our works. As verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul says that if we could, if we could be justified by our works, if we could somehow attain righteousness for ourselves by doing something, by following the law, by, by being good, by being perfect, if we could, then the work of Christ would actually be worthless. Why would Christ come to die if we could earn this righteousness for ourselves? He's saying that if we do that, we're treating Christ's death on the cross as unnecessary. But in truth, only the life, death, and resurrection of Christ on our behalf can make us righteous. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. And this is important for us to keep in mind. Because although I doubt that many of us would try to include circumcision as something necessary for salvation, there are other works that we may subtly add to the gospel. We may begin to think that God will only make us righteous if we work our hardest and try our best and do good things. It's easy to add our own performance as a condition for our justification or add performance to someone else's justification. And the performance might be in the quality of your marriage or how well your kids are obey or how much you read the Bible or how much you get out of your time in the Bible or it might be feeling the need to, to have the right emotion during worship. There are many things that we could subtly add as a condition to true acceptance by God beyond just our faith. So when you're tempted to impose a condition on the gospel that God does not impose, remember that doing that actually diminishes the work of Christ on the cross. So fighting for justification by faith alone is really fighting for the glory that God deserves and the right view of the cross. Galatians urges us to exalt Christ by remembering that salvation is through him alone and that our works do not add to our justification. So Paul actually gives us more reasons to exalt Christ in Galatians beyond just this. In chapters 3 and 4, he explains how Christ fulfills some very important promises from the Old Testament. If you look down at chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So one reason that we actually spent kind of the first half of 2019 going through the Old Testament book by book was to lay a foundation for the promises that God was making, to look at the foundational redemptive promises in Scripture. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of many of those promises, but if you don't understand what those promises are in the beginning, you don't get the full effect. So Paul was someone who knew the Old Testament well and was starting from that point, and that's why we spent some time trying to get that perspective as well. So Paul is referring to the Abrahamic covenant here. This was established in Genesis 12, and it was one of the biggest promises in redemptive history as God worked in the world. And it served as one of the biggest backdrops for the entire Old Testament. 
the nation of Israel placed their hope in God's unconditional promise to bless them. When he said to Abraham, I will bless you and give you many descendants and give you land. And that promise was unconditional for Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel. And Paul shared in this hope. But he shows that that hope is not limited just to the nation of Israel. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, in other words, he was justified by faith, so also all those who place their faith in Christ receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. He's saying just like Abraham believed God and was justified, so now anyone can, whether Jew or Gentile. We can all share in this promise that God has made. And Paul says this is actually clear from the beginning because God told Abraham, through you shall all the nations, which another way to translate that word is the Gentiles, will be blessed. So Paul says he preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. And it should have actually been apparent that the blessing to Abraham was going to be mediated to anyone in the world, Jew or Gentile alike. And it is Jesus who was the descendant of Abraham, through whom that blessing can come to the nations. Jesus is the one who mediates the blessing of salvation to anyone who believes in him, whether Jew or Gentile. And so through Jesus, both Jew and Gentile can receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, which is primarily salvation and reconciliation with God. So that's one aspect where Paul refers back to the Abrahamic covenant to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of these redemptive promises. He also explains how the law fits into these promises. If you look down in uh, Galatians 3, verse 10, Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul says that trying to earn righteousness by keeping the law brings a curse, not a blessing. And it's interesting because Paul is kind of subtly pointing out that the blessing that these Jews want in the Abrahamic covenant doesn't come by keeping the law. Keeping the law and trying to earn your righteousness by that actually brings a curse, not a blessing. And it brings a curse because in order to attain righteousness from the law, you have to keep the entire law perfectly, which no person is able to do. Even the best person starts off life with a sinful nature and is already disqualified from being able to keep the law perfectly. Failing in one part of keeping the law brings a curse. But verse 13 in Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Paul says that in Christ, the curse of our own disobedience is removed. Jesus took on our curse and replaced it with the blessing of salvation. Paul is clear that the law doesn't save. He says trying to keep the law brings a curse that only Jesus can remove. But Paul also says that that doesn't mean that the law itself is bad. That's an important clarification. Look at verse 19. It says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
So this verse tells us that God gave the law to give us a knowledge of sin. It was added because of transgressions in order to let us know that sin is sin. God instituted the law to specify how Israel was to obey and what it means to disobey him. God actually gave the law as a form of grace, believe it or not. And it's a grace because it shows the sinfulness of sin, and it removes any question about what is right and what is wrong. It exposes our sin, and it points people to their need to be saved from that sin. As Romans 7.12 says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the law itself is not bad, but using the law as a means for salvation is. That's the distinction. The law is good. Trying to use the law to be justified is bad, because that's not what God instituted the law for. And this is exactly what Galatians 3.21 says. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. In other words, the law is good. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is an important distinction. The law is good, but it is not a means of salvation. That is not what God instituted the law for. And this is what Paul is really fighting against. That they, He's saying that these Jews had misunderstood the purpose of the law. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And this is how people in Israel could be saved under the law. Because the law exposed their sin and it compelled them to place their faith in God's redemptive promises. They didn't know Jesus by name, but they trusted in God's promise that he would send a redeemer who would save them from their sins. So people could be saved in Israel even under the law because they weren't trusting in the law, they were trusting in God. But Paul is saying that those who do trust in the law and in their law keeping are trying to have a works salvation, which is never what the law was intended to do. And Paul says the law is good, but Jesus is actually better. The law served its purpose in exposing people's sins and showing them their need for a savior, but the law could not save. And that's why we need Jesus. And That's actually the point of verses 23 to 29 in Galatians 3, that the law leads us to Jesus, and then Jesus fulfills what God's purpose in these promises is. And these verses here and how Jesus fits into this actually leads to one of the biggest points of application in the book of Galatians. So look in verse 23 with me. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This says that in Christ Jesus, all believers are one. We are united. We are equal in our standing before God. Faith in Christ levels the playing field. The faithful Jew who comes to Christ is no better than the pagan Gentile. 
The child raised in a Christian home who believes in Christ at an early age is no better than the pagan whom God saves out of a lifestyle of sin. The rich Christian is no better than the poor one. No race or social status or gender makes one Christian better than the other. That's the implication of faith in Christ. And that means that we need to be careful not to make one of those distinguishing marks a qualifier for the gospel. Just as Paul speaks to these Jews and Gentiles and says, don't let one of your ethnicities become an entrance requirement for the gospel, we need to do the same. We must not demand that someone else look and talk like us before we accept their conversion as real. If someone has truly believed in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, we must accept them as equal members in the family of God. We can't put restrictions where God doesn't. So in Galatians, Paul looks back on the Old Testament to show us first that the Abrahamic covenant extends to Gentiles, and he looks back to the Old Testament to show us that the law is good and points people towards faith in Christ. But he refers back to the Old Testament one more time in a fairly unique way in chapter 4. In, uh, if you look down in chapter 4, verses 21 to 24, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. Does that make your eyebrows raise? Ooh, he just said allegorically. That's a bad word. I, I thought we valued literal interpretation of scripture here. Allegory's bad. Allegory leads to interpretations like, you need to find the five smooth stones in your life that will help you slay your giants. That's what I think of when I think of allegory. So what is Paul saying? And should we interpret the Old Testament allegorically? Like, is Paul giving us an open door to just take things however we want? Well, I would say no, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's important to note that the New Testament authors use the Old Testament in a couple different ways. There's not one way that every person uses every text in the Old Testament exactly the same. Sometimes they quote the Old Testament and say that an event that has happened in the New Testament is a direct fulfillment of a prediction in the Old Testament. So Matthew, when he quotes Isaiah 7.14 to say that Jesus' birth was from a virgin, that's a direct fulfillment of a prophecy of God in Isaiah chapter 7. That's one way they can use it. Another way the Old Testament is used is by means of allusion or reference. So when Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son, and he says this is fulfilled in Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to Egypt, he's not saying that Hosea in some mystical way was predicting that Jesus would go down to Egypt and then come out. Matthew was referring to this and saying that just like Israel went down to Egypt, so did Jesus following in the footsteps of Israel. But where, Jesus, where Israel failed in their history, Jesus would not. Matthew is referring to the Old Testament to make a point about Jesus. Sometimes, stories from the Old Testament are used as examples. So not as this is fulfilled in this, but rather just as an example. So in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses the events of Israel during their time in the wilderness to warn Christians about being overly confident in their own ability. He says, look, Israel had everything going for them and they still failed. Don't think that you are any better. 
So Paul was actually drawing morals from those story, those stories and applying them to his audience. And this, too, is an appropriate use of the Old Testament. But then sometimes the New Testament uses the Old Testament as an illustration. And this is what's happening in Galatians. At this point in Galatians, Paul has essentially completed his argument that justification is by faith alone and not by works. He's already exposed the false gospel as unbiblical and illogical and incorrect. He now concludes his argument by making a dramatic reference to Israel's history. The Judaizers were demanding circumcision because they had too high a view of their Jewish heritage, and now Paul is using it against them to show them that their high view is actually incorrect. So he says, think about Sarah and Hagar. Sarah was free. Hagar was a slave. Sarah bore a child according to God's promise. Hagar bore a child according to the flesh. Isaac, who was Sarah's son, received the inheritance promised by God, whereas Ishmael, Hagar's son, was cast out. So Paul is saying that when the Galatians added restrictions to the gospel, they were living like Ishmael, not like Isaac. They were returning to slavery and turning away from God's promise. They were claiming to be upholding their Jewish heritage, but they were actually turning away from it. So Paul was exposing that they had misunderstood what they were doing and how it related to their history. Paul masterfully uses Hagar and Sarah as an illustration that the Galatians would have clearly understood. He's not allegorizing the narrative in the way that people like Philo or Origen would, where one thing corresponded to another and the context doesn't really matter. You can just do whatever you want with it. He's not doing that. He's using the well-known story of Hagar and Sarah as an illustration. And this means that we don't have the right to allegorize Scripture for our purposes, because that's not what Paul is doing. This shows that Paul actually has a very high view of scripture. He's very concerned about what the original authors meant in this story, and he wants to use that in his arguments here. Throughout Galatians, Paul has evidenced this view. He's quoted from scripture. He said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and there's many other quotations. He explains scripture as he went through that discourse of what the law's purpose really was, and here he's using scripture to illustrate and bring his point home. So, In reality, Paul could not have written Galatians without the authority of the rest of Scripture. The argument of Galatians for Paul rests on the authority of Scripture. And we need to have that same attitude as we defend the gospel, as we preach the truth of Christ. When we defend the gospel, we can't do so on the basis solely of our logic or our philosophy or our arguments. We need to use Scripture And we need to use scripture not in ways that we would want to twist, but in ways that the original authors intended the scripture to be used. We can learn that from how Paul uses the Old Testament here. Now, as we come to chapter 5, we come to the last section of the letter where Paul makes some application based on the teaching that he's given uh, throughout. He gives the application of justification by faith alone. And this application starts with our view of our own standing in Christ. In Galatians 5.1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The main application of the entire letter is to trust in Christ alone for justification and not to add any requirement for someone to be justified. 
He says, stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given you and do not be drawn away into any temptation to add to the gospel. So that's the main application. But Paul is also thinking about certain pitfalls that could come as we live in this freedom that our faith in Christ has given us. So first, if we rest in our justification, that could lead us to be passive in our sanctification. And there's a difference there. Justification is when God declares us righteous. Sanctification is where we actually grow in our holiness. So God sees us as righteous and holy, but we know that we're still, we still have sin. We still have sinful natures. So sanctification is that process of growing in Christ, working towards becoming more holy. And so if we focus too much about how there's no works involved as the basis of our justification, there could be a danger that we use that as our philosophy of sanctification and never try to follow Christ. So Paul counteracts this in chapter 5, verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And in verse 13, he says, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our work does not produce justification, but in order to be sanctified, we must work out our salvation as God works it in us. As we rest in our justification, we must strive to produce our sanctification. And this is the tightrope of the Christian life, making sure we don't merge sanctification into justification. We don't rest where we're supposed to work and work where we're supposed to rest. That's difficult. This is why Paul had to write Galatians, because it's confusing and hard to understand. And so Paul gives us two keys to keep in mind as we walk this tightrope. First, he says, walk by the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's reminding us that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a part of the inheritance and blessing of God. Those who are justified by faith in Christ receive the Holy Spirit. And in order to rightly live out our justification, we must submit the desires of our flesh to the desires of the Spirit. Christ has set believers free, and we must use that freedom to pursue the fruit of the Spirit rather than gratifying the desires of the flesh. So as we walk the tightrope of making sure we're not trying to work to be justified, but that we are seeking to follow Christ, remember that the Spirit of God is in you, and that the Spirit wants you to be holy more than you do. So acknowledge his presence, submit to his desires, and seek to produce the fruit of the Spirit. That's the first key. The second is to remember our relationship to sin. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said, He was crucified with Christ, and he no longer lives. Christ lives in him. In 524, he says something similar. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And in 614, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. So Paul says that sin no longer controls the believer. Sin doesn't control them. At conversion, God makes a person alive. He regenerates their heart, and he removes the hold that the world and the flesh have on them. This means that we can pursue God and grow in holiness after conversion. We have that ability 
Because we have been crucified to our old person. The world has been crucified to us, and the flesh has been crucified. Before conversion, it was impossible to do this. But after conversion, it is essential that we do this. So as you seek to understand how do I live out my life in Christ, how do I grow in sanctification, remember your relationship to sin, that it has been crucified. So these are the implications of justification. And truly, these are the implications of the entire book of Galatians. As we finish our time in the book this morning, I encourage you to consider your own life to see if you're walking in the Spirit or walking according to the flesh. And consider if you're adding to the gospel, adding a hoop to jump through before God will accept you or will accept others. And as you consider those things, as you seek to get the full force of what Paul is saying in all its harshness, don't forget Jesus. Remember Jesus, who has redeemed you from the curse of the law, paid the penalty of sin, and given you his righteousness. Nothing can ever take that away.